My guest today is Clive Best. I did physics at university, and I had no real intention of doing research at that stage. I was convinced by the university that by sending me, they sent me to CERN, actually, uh, for, in the summer holidays. And I, uh, I found that I was being given lectures by two Nobel Prize winners. So I was kind of impressed by that. I had one that was um, Vicky Weisscott, and the other was Jack Steinberger, and I loved it. And the whole atmosphere at CERN was just great. So when I came back to my final year at Liverpool, I studied physics and got a first and, you know, top, I got a prize in physics. So they, I then stayed on um, at Liverpool and started work on an experiment at CERN, which was basically a spectrometer experiment to measure plane uh, particle production. So then I, with that, I got a PhD from the uh, university and then won a, a CERN fellowship, which was basically um, working and living in Geneva at CERN, working at CERN for two years. And by that time I got married and we had our first uh, son in Geneva. But working at CERN was really, really something else. I can't, I can't express how at that stage as well, because a lot, a lot was happening in high-energy physics. There was a charm particle discovery. Uh, while I was there, there was a J, J Psi was the um, particle that was discovered at Berkeley and also Sammy T. Then it was a very exciting time to be in, in high-energy physics. So we, um, I worked on a, something called deep inelastic muon scattering, and I studied yeah, charm particle production. And then uh, after this, the CERN fellowship, I came back to the UK and got a research associate job in Rutherford Lab for a couple of years. But then something really interesting was happening was that down the road in Cullen, which is very near Oxford, there was a big, huge experiment, a European collaboration to build a, a tokamak, the largest tokamak in the world, uh, to study nuclear fusion. And I'd always... Uh, been very interested in nuclear fusion because, in principle, it's the infinite source of energy. It's, it's the ultimate energy source of the universe. The sun is a nuclear fusion reactor. And if we could ever get fusion to work on Earth, then we would solve all our energy problems outright. Of course, the problem is it's very hard. Nuclear fission is much easier because you just have to put enough enrich uranium together and you've got a chain reaction and you can control it with rods. So it's a bit easier, but uh, fusion is, is the infinite energy source. So I worked there for about three or four years and uh, we collaborated with Princeton. They wrote a tokamak there, TFTR. So I spent, uh, I spent three months in Princeton working with them on uh, software. But uh, during that time, I, um, I applied to the European uh, Commission for a, a research job and uh, was interviewed in Brussels. And luckily, because I'd been working in, in Geneva, I was able to speak some French. Because the, work, the thing you have to be able to do in a sense is be able to speak at least one other language. So I, I got in and got on the reserve list on that basis and ended up or joining the Joint Research Center. So we're talking about a period of 10 or 15 years in that, in that, those sort of songs. And um, I got a job in the European, in the 
EU Joint Research Centre, which is in Italy. Um, and I worked there for uh, nearly, uh, nearly 20 years at the end, over 20 years, actually. And I did a lot of different things there. One of them actually was vaguely related to climate because I, um, one of the IT jobs I was doing was, it was to put all the ECMWF, and that's the European Centre of Medium Range Weather Forecasting, Onto, which was on magnetic tape, and I had to. I wanted to put it on a a, a, a cassette system, which is more uh, easier to use. And uh, but while I was doing that, I thought I'd like to calculate what the temperature of the Earth is based on the weather data. And um, I did that and um, found that yes, there had been a small increase in, in temperature over the last. In that case, at that time, it was like twenty years, forty years, whatever it was but uh, nothing very significant. Uh, but I also noticed that there was some sort of oscillation in the data, which was, which was the moon, a monthly oscillation, which I thought was probably due to the moon. And it started a long-term uh, interest in whether the moon affects the climate, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Eventually, I, I ended up doing a lot of work on what's called open source information. Uh, so what, what my, my team did in the Joint Research Centre, we built a media monitoring system which allowed the Commission to uh, get updates on anything they wanted. So they'd give us a topic and they would produce uh, our newsletters based on the information we scraped off different news websites and so on. And out of that came a spin-off where I left the EU and started a private company with some colleagues to, uh, to look at commercialising this uh, media monitoring system. And we had some success there, with uh, mainly in medical area. So we were looking at emerging diseases, and we had uh, a big customer there who was uh, was interested. In fact, it was the Canadian government because they had they had a problem with SARS originally. And the original SARS was um, was uh, there was a, a large number of cases in Toronto, I think, because they they'd come back from China, and. Um, Anyway, so after we, we did this work for about a few years and then eventually we, we decided to fold it up because it was making, but by that time we had all sorts of problems with copyright and everything else. So it was getting too complicated to, uh, you know, we'd have to start paying for copyright and everything. But it, one thing is true is that if we'd kept that running, we would have had early warning of COVID because we were monitoring Chinese websites, basically, in China, and we had all the right keywords to look for emerging domain. So it's a bit of a shame that we didn't keep it running. Let's go on to the main subject here. About 14, I've been keeping this blog running for about 14 years um, because, you know, I kept hearing all this uh, stuff about how dangerous climate change was and everything else. So I decided to look into it. And I think one thing we, we can say is that climate science today has become way too politicized. Uh, the IPCC is, is not really just a scientific organization. And there's all sorts of hangers on and people with vested interest in renewable energy who are steering the whole shebang. So it can behave like a closed shop. If you try and question something, you get treated as an outsider. And so the climate science community have sort of kind of closed ranks like a football team. The point is that in science, the debate is never over. You never know the, the final result. And in fact, it's still the same. So I decided to understand the physics of the, the greenhouse effect and so on. 
So the first thing to notice about the Earth is that it's 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 unique. It, uh, it has a very special atmosphere. In fact, the strange thing about it is that the CO2 levels are tiny in reality. It's 0.03%. Oxygen is 20%. Water vapor. You know, and the fact that the Earth has, is two-thirds covered in oceans is, is obviously a huge effect on the climate. Um, but the CO2 is, is, why is the CO2 level so low? And it turns out this is because two billion years ago, cyanobacteria, which is the first organisms that managed to solve photosynthesis, they consumed the CO2 in the atmosphere using water vapor, and they released oxygen and produced hydrocarbons, which eventually ends up as food for animals, which hadn't yet evolved. Once animals evolve, then animals uh, are producing CO2 and sort of balance between life. So it's a living thing. This is why, why Venus and Mars are so different. And the atmosphere keeps the surface just warm enough for life to thrive. And this is all thanks to the greenhouse effect, so it's a very good thing. It's not exactly obvious how CO2 actually produces a greenhouse effect. It's, very, it's actually very complicated. If you want to understand it, then you have to understand the quantum lines of emission from uh, CO2 from vibration, vibrational states and rotational states. So what is going on here is that in order to do that, you have to use the Hytran database in order to work out what, um, what's going on. So effective emission height from 15 micron CO2 bands, which is what I calculated here on the left, shows you the height in the atmosphere where the CO2 is emitting to space. So CO2 is emitting from a cooler area, cooler place than, than the surface. And what's happening is that it, by doing that, it keeps, the, uh, it keeps the surface warmer than it would be. But so does water vapor. I mean, water vapor is a bigger effect than CO2. If you double the constant, so in black, you can see that the, the 300 parts per million is what it was. And the red is what would happen if you double CO2. So if we double CO2, probably in 50 years' time, we would get to that stage. What's happening is that the, the atmosphere is on, it has a lapse rate. This is a big picture taken from Richard Lindsay, which is actually brilliant, because it shows you here that if you raise the temperature up here, then what happens is you move from one, one uh, adiabatic to another. And what happens is that the surface tends to rise slightly. So you get a small rise in temperature. And this is called radiated forcing of CO2. What it means is that if we now calculate what spectra we have, so going from one part per million, 10 parts per million, 100 parts per million, and so on, sorry, then we get um, the spectra. And um, you, for each one of those, you can calculate uh, the effect on the, the forcing, let's call it the uh, radiated forcing, which you see. When I calculate that, I get a, a, a term, which is, in my case, 6.6 .6 log of C over C0, where C0 is 100 parts per million. And you can calculate what the radiated forcing is with CO2 concentration. And you can also then compare the spectrum that I showed on the previous one, what will actually measure it? And you can see that, yes, yeah, sure enough, there's this, there's this, this, is, this is taking over the equator. So it's a infrared spectrum taking over the equator. And yeah, as you can see, you've got a fairly large CO2 dip, a bit where 
it's essentially radiating from colder air, colder places. Because it's radiating from colder places, it's keeping the, the atmosphere, the lapse rate higher. So we end up with a uh, temperature around 288 degrees on the surface. These, um, these ones here are, so water vapor is where everywhere else. Water vapor has huge numbers of, of radiated lines. And so it's all this area around here and all this area around there. And uh, here we've got a, a window. There's a, a window in the in your spectrum where the radiation from the surface can go straight out. And then we've got ozone here. And some around here, we've got methane. But a lot of fuss is made about methane. But in fact, you know, it's not as, uh, it's nothing like as strong as CO2 or, or a water vapor. Right. As I said, as I showed before, you've got this uh, radiative forcing curve, which is a sort of logarithmic curve. And so from that, you can actually work out based on the relapse rate and so on, you can work out what the temperature dependence is on CO2. And basically, if you double CO2, you end up with about one and a half degree increase in temperature. And what, is, what does one and a half degree increase in temperature mean? Well, I mean, between night and day, you can get a, a change in temperature of about 20 degrees. And some in between uh, winter and summer, you get a change of uh, 40 degrees in places. Uh, so one and a half degrees is not a lot. It's nothing to worry about in the sense that it's not going to affect uh, life of humans on Earth or something like that. One and a half degrees is what the simple basic physics tells you. Of course, the only way to get seriously dangerous ones is to uh, assume feedbacks which are very positive, and a lot of the compete, a lot of the uh, climate models have got these feedbacks in things like the carbon cycle, the uh, clouds, and uh, I mean, I, I think clouds is actually a negative feedback. Some people want to make it a positive feedback. I mean, if, when when does when the sun goes behind the cloud, I get cold. I don't know about anybody else, but um, I find that you know the, the clouds are not going to warm me up. Right, so. Um, how anyway would you measure the Earth's temperature from the from the surface? Well, you can't really do it. Uh, certainly, we couldn't. We can't look at the temperature of the Earth in the past because uh, we don't have the data. So we use some tricks to do it instead. Instead of using the actual temperature, we end up using an anomaly, and it's the same argument. So you have a weather station, and it has some climate associated with it. That's defined by a 30-year average of the monthly data on that station. And the, the uh, anomaly is the difference between that station, the temperature you measure, and the 30-year average. And then, of course, sometimes you get things that look strange. And so there's this move to homogenize everything. Uh, homogenize means making sure that it, all the uh, weather stations behave uh, nicely. And then we do an area-weighted average over the whole globe. And then where we don't have any data, we try and do some fiddling to, to fit uh, some smooth curves into where we don't have much data, like the Arctic. But, I mean, these are all, these are all tricks. Which are, and so you can see how temperatures have actually evolved rather dramatically. If we go back to the fifth uh, assessment report, there was something called the hiatus, and everyone said, "Oh goodness me, it hasn't really hasn't uh, there's been no warming since 1998. And uh, if you look at the green curve, there certainly wasn't any warming. This was had crept three in in 
2000, and I think the one in the data, if you look back at the assessment report number four, you'll see that there, there, there was a lot of discussion about why there's been a hiatus. But of course, this is obviously something which was not, didn't really give the right story. So a lot of work has been done since then to get rid of it. And uh, by various uh, mechanisms, and as you can see, um, they had we've succeeded in getting rid of it. So now, if in the most latest uh, versions, where the also the, the sea surface temperature has been updated, and this made a big difference between going from at the um, SST three to four, we find that the difference between the blue and the red is actually just due to the ocean data. And uh, yellow was the uh, was the updated version, which got rid of the well, it didn't really get rid of the hiatus, but um, so you can see that there's been a lot of somehow the turbocharging global warming by a quarter of a degree. The other thing is um, homogenization is a, another one where they've developed automatic algorithms that try to check uh, individual weather stations against near near neighbors. But sometimes those near neighbors could be 500 miles away. But um, in Australia, they can be a thousand miles. The idea is that, that they homogenize the stations to agree with each other uh, using some algorithm. Now, there are some reasons why you need to you need to create them. Because, for example, if a station's been moved uh, to a different location, then you can get a, a you can definitely get a, a ship. But it's not just that because they're all being being um, homogenized. So what I show here is the um, GHCN V V four. So the raw data is in red, and the blue data is the corrected data, and you can see that's the effect of homogenization. So somewhere between those two is probably the truth. I call these systematic errors. Here you can see an example of what homogenization actually does. So here's a Dado, which is in uh, Australia, and there's been a station move, uh, and you can see that from about um, 1990, but. If you look carefully, you can see that as well as that, this uh, what was a flat measurement of temperature has suddenly also gone down to, to negatively to a slope. Now I'm not. I, I find that difficult to understand. I, I actually invented my own way of calculating temperatures, and I thought, well, you know, everyone's using maps, and uh, maps are two-dimensional things. Well. Why don't we keep the Earth as a, as a sphere, which is what it is? And there are two methods that I've used to do that, to calculate the global average. One uses something called icosahedral binning. And I so which is, it's, um, you can see that you end up, you, you, can, you can generate a, a mesh in, in, uh, around the surface. And for each mesh point, you can calculate the end or the temperature inside. And then you've got a perfect um, distribution of temperature, which uh, is not being, not being biased by the fact that you don't have much information in the, in the Arctic. So here we've got the, uh, both, both poles. So just to show, I mean, there isn't much data in the, in the Antarctic poles. This is clear. Uh, also, there's a lack of data in the, in the Arctic, especially early on. But this at least gets out of the let's say the going from three, 2D to 3D. Yeah. So I think these are much better ways of doing it. And the second method is to triangulate. So we take all the, the um, 
we take all the ocean data, we take all the land data, and we just triangulate it. So there's this technique, a mathematical technique, where you can make a, a spherical triangulation of all the data on, on the uh, on the surface, and then uh, a simple averaging avoids any bias. I get good results. But I'm um, moving on to look at why anomalies are used. Well, one of the important reasons why anomalies are preferred is because the models themselves need anomalies, because they don't, they disagree about what the average temperature of the Earth is. It's incredible, really. But they, so these sophisticated models are not giving the correct answer for the temperature of the Earth. This is the actual data. This is the temperature data from, from let's say, one of the sun, GHCN or the Earth or whatever it is. And these are the models. And you can see that therefore only hardly any of them will agree with what the temperature is. So that's why anomalies are so, are so good. And lo and behold, the models do agree during the normalization period. Well, they have to because they're already fixed, they're fixed in doing. And so, um, you know, you can see how the, uh, the models are bound to agree and they start to diverge uh, when you get to these outside of the normalization period. So um, sometimes you need to be a bit careful what, um, what they're being said. And of course, the models are when extrapolating to, to far in the future are also has systematic errors. How bad is global warming really? Well, um, if you believe the, the latest, well, let, let's put it this way. Temperature on Earth range between minus 50 centigrade in Siberia to plus 50 centigrade in the Sahara Desert and probably in Death Valley, it's even higher. So you've got a range of temperatures which uh, people experience at 100 degrees, a 1.5 degree in, in increase in mean temperatures. It's hardly noticeable. And in fact, um, the only way it, it might affect is through, uh, let's say, maybe uh, less snow in the winter or whatever. The other thing that they go on about is sea level rise. Or, I mean, well, you know, sea level rise of, it's something like 15, uh, let's say 10 centimeters. It's absolutely tiny between low and high tide. You can get ranges of 20 meters or 40, even up to 40 meters. And during spring tides, you get, if it's a moon is in, the, is in conjunction with the, with the sun, you get a spring tide on a full moon. And that is, that is much far higher than any affected sea level rise due to the expanding of the ocean. But um, the other desert islands are growing anyway. They, they grow with the sea. Let's go back here. And this is the, the screen that we got from the latest um, summary report, which is, it is just scaremongering. It's assuming four degrees of, of warning, five degrees of warning by the end of this century. Now, no wonder young people and, uh, are worried. No wonder there's a lot of, um, they're demanding that they uh, stop using oil and, and fossil fuels, because this, this is not science, this is propaganda. And what are we supposed to do about it, about global warming? Well, simple. We just cut emissions to zero, and that's easy. Well, how, how are you going to do that? Are we going to use renewable energy? Um, if we're going to use renewable energy, how are we going to renew 
the equipment every 20 years. Wind turbines and solar panels are made of steel. They use rare earths and they use lots of concrete. The panels are, are imported from China and they're brought, they're brought over on big ships and everything else. So, uh, and roads use tarmac. So modern agriculture relies on fertilizers. If you want to uh, stop, and fertilizers are often used from uh, produce CO2 from production. So somehow we have to abandon modern agriculture and we probably have to go back to some sort of some crop rotation system. How is the transport going to work? Well, roads use tarmac. The tarmac's made of oil. Trains, bikes need steel and aluminium, rubber. Electric cars rely on batches. Batches are, need to be replaced. Steel, uh, rare earth, shipping, rubber, etc. So basically, it won't work. You cannot run a modern society on wind turbines and solar panels. It's not going to work. It's uh, impossible. So really, we need a, a better plan. We need a longer term plan. Incidentally, here, I just wanted to put in, uh, this is a bit jumping around a bit, but I wanted to also to, because I saw that you interviewed Ralph Ellis, and I did some work with him on the rice ages. But this is what I would call devastating ice climate change. Another ice age would put civilization back, would kill off civilization, would be going back to living, uh, you know, North America would be uh, under, under about 100 meters of ice. So, you know, we could have terrible. So uh, what is a real devastating climate change is ice ages. And we don't really understand how they are formed. And we're going to have another ice age um, eventually because it depends on the astronomical, it depends on the orbits of the Earth around the sun and it depends on the uh, inclination of the Earth on the plane. And uh, so we've got the eccentricity of the orbit. Ralph Ellis produced this very nice idea that ice ages are also ended. It's, you know, why do they last so long now? Well, the reason they last so long currently, and they didn't about 2 million years ago, is because the Antarctica grows over and it remains under ice continuously. So the, the bit where you know, the melting of the ice cap on Antarctica used to give an equilibrium between North and South Pole, but now it doesn't. So basically we're stuck in a situation where the North Pole, the Northern Hemisphere freezes over and somehow it has to be broken. Uh, and with the next, um, what they call solar maximum. And this is what his idea is using dust out there. So you can see the purple here is the dust and uh, these are the, the red is the temperature and the, the, the yellow is the CO2. So, um, and there was no, there were no, um, there were no motor cars in those days. CO2 rose up because life the dock again. I just wanted to say that since since that, I've tried to model this uh, using a dust albedo model, which is based on Imri's uh, ice model. I won't go into details on it. And I delayed the first turn by 15,000 uh, years in order to um, allow for it to melt down. With the dust albedo model, I can basically reproduce the uh, the last few ice ages. The next ice age is actually going to be the worst one in the last four hundred thousand years, as far as I can work out. Um, the Eemian interglacial, the the one before the one the last one, was actually um, warmer than it is today. It was um, 
you can see here, you know, the, the temperature is, is warmer. These are on the same scale. Now, of course, we don't show this pipe here, so it's probably about the same as it is today in the so-called uh, global warming. But what I wanted to show was that there's this, there's actually a, a, a there's a cycle uh, in um, eccentricity. We're about to enter a very low eccentricity cycle, and these are always associated with very deep ice ages. So the next ice age we don't want to experience because it's going to last for a great uh, a long time. It's going to last for tens of tens of thousands of years, and it's going to be a very a very deep ice age. If global warming avoids us another ice age, then it's actually doing us a favor. What are we going to do about supplying mankind with the energy that it needs? Climate change is a symptom, and it's not the fi you know, fundamental problem. I mean, we've always had man is too successful, if you like. We have basically industrialized and uh, live much better lives than our, pre our ancestors did, and we live much longer. Um, the, the, what we paid for that in the past is things like acid rain, uh, the London smogs. Now, I remember as a small child, about five years old, being completely um, in a London smog. I had to walk with a torch in front of my mother's car because it was, she couldn't see it. From the ozone layer, and even horse manure in the Victorian times in, in London was a serious problem because they had to clear it up. So, well, they had handsome cabs driven by horses in the middle of town, so it was a bit of a problem. All these have been resolved. Oil, at some point, is going to become spare, scarce. They, they talk about peak oil. So at some point, oil may become very expensive. So how do we avoid a moving energy crisis? and maintain our living standards. And this is why renewable energy can't work. In Britain, uh, we, have, we have a climate change act, which is an act of almost like ideological um, suicide. We have committed ourselves by law, supposedly, to reduce greenhouse effects by 100% net zero in two, by 2050. The government is committed to do this. And so they've been building lots of wind power stations, wind and solar plants and offshore wind farms. But lo and behold, it doesn't work. It only works when the wind blows. And if, it, if the wind doesn't blow, we get a massive problem. So in here, in this graph here, you've got um, a trace of the gas output, the gas power against wind energy. And you see the... Uh, Last year, we had a period of about two weeks, three weeks without any wind. And so gas is pulled, pulled out, gas power stations were powered up to the maximum amount. And this regularly happens. It happens in the winter and so on. So we can't rely on wind and solar power. And this is recognized by David Mackay. Uh, David Mackay was a physicist in, in Cambridge. He was made... Uh, chief scientist in the, uh, the Department of Energy. And uh, he wrote a very good book called Sustainable Energy Without the Hot Air. Uh, unfortunately, he, he died uh, of cancer about uh, five or six years ago, and, uh, which is a sh real shame. And he made a, before he died, he gave an interview. And he made, he, it was like he was telling the truth. Yeah. For a country like Britain, I, mean, I don't know about the US, but certainly for Britain, 
we have to get through winter. We need heating and we need power through winter. And we can't rely on solar energy is essentially zero in winter in Britain. Wind energy is uh, temperamental. So he said, well, we need to do that. So the only way to do that is nuclear power, biomass, and maybe a bit of carbon captions and storage. But if we install this in order to get through winter, then we don't need anything else. Because if we can get through winter, we can get through summer. It's not, there's no point. So basically, the future must be nuclear. If it, if it isn't nuclear, we're going to return to the 18th, to 18th century subsistence living. Hopefully nuclear fusion at some point will take over and you have infinite amount of source, resources. So the, the emergency, the, you know, climate rebellion and so on, Greenpeace are actually more dangerous than the climate change itself because they're stopping us from solving it. They hate gas, coal, and they hate nuclear. They won't work. And so at some point, we have to, to make a decision, like France did in the 1980s after that, to, uh, to go nuclear. And basically, 10 large three, three gigawatt power stations would supply all the UK power and probably uh, charge all the electric cars in Britain. And we've solved the problem. However, UK acting alone, or even uh, anyone acting alone to, to reach carbon zero, doesn't change anything because China's emitting so much CO2, it doesn't really change it. We're paying penance for the past or something. So conclusion, I'll, I'll stop here now. So human civilization is going to either thrive or disappear in the next 2,000 years, depending on the choices we make now. Renewable energy can't renew itself. I mean, if it can't renew itself, then it's not going to work. It just last 20 years and then, then rot. It would be like Easter Island. International trade depends on shipping. What, who's going to, how are we going to replace uh, shipping? We're going to use sailing ships? Well, so nuclear energy is our last chance to live in harmony with nature for the long term. You know, that lots of excess energy at night. You can, with that excess energy, you can make synthetic fuels for our motor cars and whatever, or even aviation fuel. All primary energy on Earth is anyway nuclear. The sun or geothermal, even geothermal energy is, is nuclear decay. So if you accept these facts, then and future generations, everything will be fine. Thank you. I'll stop there. All right. Thank you. You mentioned you are calculating your own global temperature anomalies. Did yeah. you do that back to 1979 by any chance so you could compare what you had to like UAH? They're not my temperature measurements. I'm still using GHCN data. So they tend to be, they tend to agree with GHCN. Um, but of course, the method will work on, on any data. So my, my method is just the lap long for the temperature measures. But what I'm currently using is GHCN and Hadley sea surface temperature. So it's, they basically agree with, uh, with the other, uh, the, okay. the other trend. Yeah. UA, UAH is interesting because it, it, um, it does follow the same trend, but it, it's measuring the atmosphere. And it's possible that there's a difference. I don't quite, I don't fully understand why they, they are slightly different, but they are, yeah. All right. And then are you working at all with the Connollys and Willie Soon on some of this stuff, or have you read their work on it? I've read some of the work. I haven't, um, I haven't been in contact with them, no. I, mean, no. I was in contact with some climate scientists, originally, and um, they were, uh, then I think they took offense when I was uh, maybe a bit uh, Critical. <laughs> that sounds about right. 
What do you think, based on what you know, what are the chances that Chicago is going to get covered by a thousand feet of ice in the next uh, couple thousand years? Any idea at all? I, I think I think it's much longer than that. I think it's. It looks like we we narrowly avoided one. If you think about it, it's possible that the Little Ice Age was a sort of failed uh, glaciation. As things stand, it's probably at least another ten thousand years before we reach another another ice age. But it will happen unless we we manage to use CO two as a sort of thermostat to keep to avoid it. It's funny because. You know, the Earth is much warmer in the past. It's, it, it's actually it's its coldest it's ever been. Um, if you look at the uh, the data from the uh, ice data going back, which is actually basically from benthic flora, which they find in the in the ocean and so on, you can find uh, that the Earth is much much warmer, even even a couple of million years ago. So it's never been as cold as it is today. Yeah, I think someone else said that the Earth recently was the coldest for at least 10,000 years, maybe in 1800s. Yeah. Does that sound right to you? Uh, possibly, yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, yes. Um, a good part from the last glaciation, of course. But, yeah. In fact, glaciations are weird because um, it depends. As I said, tried to say, there is there was a glaciation in Britain uh, called the Anglian about 400,000 years ago. And it, it diverted the Thames. In, in the UK, the, the ice actually came down and it went so far south that the Thames, uh, the Thames used to flow out through the wash, basically, in the, in the, on the east coast. The ice pushed the Thames around down where it flows out now to London 400,000 years ago. That's why uh, there's a lot of erosion going on because it's basically it's a, it's a old riverbed. I think Brian Cat may have said that there uh, were hippos in the Thames maybe 130,000 years ago. Does that sound right? <laughs> That's probably right, right, yeah. I think. <laughs> okay. Well, well, that that one... been, yeah, that would have been the Elian, uh, the previous integration. Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> Any guesses as to where the Earth's temperature is going to go just between now and 2100? I think it will probably go up about one degree. So let's say it reached, no, it'll go up 1.8, 2 degrees maximum. That's about it. I mean, in in total. But from where we are now, it'll go up about less than 1 degree, I think. And we might see some more 30-year uh, periods where it doesn't warm at all or cools between um, now and then? Yeah, there's. I mean, I think there's AMO. Is that, there's, some, there's some ideas that the Atlantic... Oscillation or the PDA is is can can deflect um, the climate for about periods of you know, ten or fifteen years now. And thanks very much for having me on. Actually, I think thanks a lot for doing this. I really appreciate this. I will talk to you next time. Then, uh, Clive right. Best. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye. -bye.